Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. So it has been a while since we touched base about a COVID update, probably over a month or so. And today we wanted to check back in because we've been getting a lot of questions about school reopening specifically from listeners. So Dr. Lena, I'm just checking to see when our last COVID update was. It was December 12th. Oh my gosh. It's been over two months. (laughs) And so today is February 17th, 2021. And, you know, this has been in the news lately because the CDC um, just on February 12th released some new guidance, which we want to talk about. But a lot of parents have seen some news surrounding this or they've seen things changing within their own communities. And um, really are looking for some guidance, as we all are, <laughs> about what what's next. What's next with schools now that kids have been home for a year, almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all been obviously impacted by mm-hmm. this, but you know where we see it is the families, where the kids um, are isolated. They're socially isolated. The um, families are. The parents are wondering, do they have to stay home with the kids or not? I mean, it's such huge changes. Right. And really, we're starting to see some data come out um, about the implications of school closures in kids. And it's really so um, alarming and significant. And me as a general outpatient pediatrician, you know, I have the opportunity to see some of these kids in my office. And so, you know, there have been some studies from the CDC that have really reported the impacts, the mental health impacts of being away from peers and, you know, school. And what they're seeing is um, an increase in mental health-related emergency department visits. So kids that are having mental health crisis, be it depression or a suicide attempt, in really young kids, 5 to 11-year-olds, they saw that increase by 24%. In 12 to 17-year-olds, they've seen those visits increase by over 30%. And a super alarming study came out of, we work in Sacramento, so UCSF, which is the University of California, San Francisco, that saw a 66% increase in the number of kids hospitalized with suicide um, attempts or, or suicide ideation since all of this started. So these are such significant things that are happening. And, you know, just anecdotally, I have seen depression rates skyrocket in teens. Yeah, I mean, these are really tangible manifestations of children not going to school and not interacting as much with their peers and with teachers. Right, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's not limited to mental health. It's it's obesity. Like I can't tell you every time I'm sure you as parents know you go to the pediatrician, we pull up your growth curve and we show you where okay. the percentages are. And I am time and time again seeing these kids weights skyrocket during this period of time. And, you know, we have done an episode before on um, school lunches and, you know, mm-hmm. 30 million kids receive free and reduced lunch. And there have been some great programs that can still provide these. But during the day, parents are telling me, you know, their kids have free access to snacks throughout the day. So they may just be 
you know, sitting at their computer, going to get a snack, maybe eating things that aren't as nutritious. They don't have physical education during the day. They really can just sit on their computers and learn. So this is going to increase the risk of obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, all very significant things. Yeah, I mean, that's a terrible combination of not having access to the expected high-quality nutritional lunches that we expect schools to provide, plus the decreased activity. I mean, that's just a recipe for crossing percentiles and for kids then suffering from the um, outcomes from obesity. Absolutely. And, you know, there are studies that look at what are expected literacy outcomes and kids being potentially held behind And there was a survey that was recently done with teachers in Los Angeles that looked at 10 months into distance learning, and they reported low levels of attendance and engagement um, and saying that really kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds are really facing these as barriers more and our, our vulnerable populations are getting left behind. So again, you know, this pandemic has been so, so challenging for people in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And teachers are just doing wonderful work in trying to engage their student and shifting to distance learning. And, um, you know, even with all the efforts that they're making, it still it doesn't work for everybody. And you and I, in our roles, we do some teaching. And, you know, I, I've struggled with the distance teaching to engage learners. It's a different skill set than, than before. And I, I'll be the first to say I've not mastered it yet, but, you know, and some kids just don't respond to that. Some kids, like, work great independently and think it's fine and, and are self-motivated, but we know that's really the minority. So it's, it's impacting children in so many ways. It's impacting children in so many ways, and it's impacting families. You know, as a female physician, and we see that women are leaving the workforce at alarming rates. And this is something that's going to stay with us for a really long time. You know, they have caregiving duties as mothers and other things. And so, you know, this is permeating every aspect of our lives, really. You know, it's not just the kids, it's the families um, that are having to cut back at work and do other things since their kids have been out of school. So getting kids back in school is is so, so important. And like we've talked about from the beginning, we do not take any of this lightly, you know, transmission, any of that. Of course, we know the risk to teachers and all of that. But there have been studies coming out lately that look at schools that have been able to remain open and have used different strategies. And then we'll discuss also the CDC guidance. So, um, Dr. Dean, I was hoping you could walk us through some of those school districts that were able to remain open, what did they do? What did it look like? And what did the transmission of COVID-19 look like? Yeah, well, but before I get there, I do want to just just um, mention one thing that you that yeah. you just mentioned and highlight that, which is that we do obviously we do take transmission seriously as the infectious disease specialist among <laughs> us. I mean, I have seen kids in the ICU with acute COVID with pneumonia on ventilators very sick children who I weren't sure were going to make it. I've seen children with many complications of COVID, including complications involving um, the heart. I've seen, um, I can't count the number of kids I've seen with the MIS-C, the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children who are scary sick, often in the ICU. So uh, obviously we care how this affects children directly, and we also care how this affects 
adults because children may transmit to adults. So we take that very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's good that we are kind of balance each other out because, you know, I, as an outpatient pediatrician, see some of the less scary cases. And of course, Dr. Dean is going to be all about infection prevention and transmission. So you have both of our our sides of the story here, which is is perfect. And he is like the real hard science data guy. So that's why I'm I actually am very curious to hear what you have to think about some of these studies that have been done. Okay, so I'm going to give a spoiler alert here, which is um, uh, reopen. Reopen is going to be the bottom line, and I hope to convince you that it is safe to reopen. Um, It's safe to do that now. And so the first um, study I want to talk about was a publication about experience in North Carolina schools. And this experience was in several school districts in North Carolina that involved more than 90,000 students that were attending school in person. Um, They looked at the number of cases of transmission that were documented, and then they did contact tracing to see how much was done in school versus out of the school. What they found was in this over nine weeks with more than 90,000 children, 32 infections were acquired by children within the schools. And that's one infection out of every 2,800 students over nine weeks, or one infection per 25,000 students per week. And there was no instances of child-to-adult transmission um, with this experience. Wow, so I that's think that, one... that's really important to highlight. No, no child-to-adult transmission. So that would be no child-to-teacher transmission or administrator. Exactly. And just to state the obvious, I mean, we know that this is more serious in adults, and so we obviously are concerned. We want to make sure that teachers, administrators, and others do feel safe at school. We don't want to put them at risk because they're the ones who are at higher risk for more severe disease compared to children. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me bring up another study, and this one comes from Um, from uh, England, and it looked at transmission in several um, educational settings. And so it looked in transmission in the early years of school, which were children less than five, primary um, schools, um, children ages four to 11, and secondary schools, um, which are children aged 11 to 18 years of age. In all of these cohorts, in all of these age groups, the cases of transmission were less than six per 100,000 individuals per day. To me, that's a very low rate. And looking at staff, they found less than 10 staff members out of 100,000 staff members per day were infected. So again, I just think this is an extraordinarily low rate of transmission that is occurring within schools. Right. And in all of these schools, they were using appropriate mitigation strategies. Is that right? So universal masking, hygiene, distancing? Yes. Universal masking, hygiene, distancing um, where feasible, and the masking when feasible. Obviously, for the lower ages, like the children less than two, they weren't masking. Okay. Perfect. Let me just bring up one more study that I think is important. And this was a recent publication from the CDC that looked at transmission and cases in rural Wisconsin schools. So this was a publication from last month. They looked at 17 schools. They were public, private, and independent schools, more than 4,800 students, um, more than 650 staff. And the first thing they looked at was masking. So masking was required. 
And they actually looked to see at the average number of the average proportion of students who were masked um, at any one week. And they found that masking varied between 92 to 97%, um, depending on the week that they checked. And it did not vary by age. So this just shows that, yes, if you, if you require children to be masked, they can do it. They, they can actually follow those guidelines. Oh, my gosh. I am so impressed by kids. Even little kids that come to the office, they're better at wearing it than the adults, honestly. <laughs> I mean, kids are amazing and fast learners, and, you know, they can do it. Then I, I've seen them pick this up with amazing, you know, wearing the mask appropriately above their nose, doing all of that. So I have no doubt that they can do this in schools. Yeah, so these children were wearing masks, and then here's what they found when they looked at the cases that occurred. They looked at the cases in students and staff. They determined by contact tracing where they became infected. So of all the cases they found, of the over 190 cases they found in students and staff, less than 4% were attributed to in-school transmission. And all of these that occurred in school, again, they were all student-to-student, none were student-to-staff, and none were staff-to-staff. So what we're finding is that schools are safe places, they're very low-risk places for transmission from student-to-student, and they're even safer for, for staff. Yeah. I mean, I think that all three of those studies really highlight the ability to do this, if we do this correctly, if we work on the mitigation strategies, if we wear masks, that we can really open this up. So I'm really happy that the CDC did release some new guidelines. Um, That was on February 12th. You will hear different things. Some people think that they didn't go far enough. (laughs) Um, You may hear, and I think that everyone's going to have their own opinion about this. But I did absolutely love one line that that I emailed to Dr. Dean when these were released, which was that K-12 through schools should be the last settings to close after all other mitigation measures in the community have been employed and the first to reopen when they can do so safely. To me, that really hit home because I haven't felt uh, like that has been prioritized in a lot of these communities. Of course, there's dining and there's gyms and there's other things (laughs) that have opened and closed throughout this when the schools have remained closed. And as a pediatrician, I've really seen the impacts like we've discussed. But what I want to do is talk a little bit about the CDC guidelines and what their recommendations are for schools now. So the biggest thing that they said is mitigation strategies to reduce the risk of transmission. So they said there's five key strategies. The first, like we discussed, universal use of correct masking. Of course, I was really happy to see that they included discussions around kids with disabilities um, that may not be able to do this correctly. So it's still so important that our kids with developmental delays or other things receive teaching, and we have to make accommodations for that. They recommend physical distancing six feet um, if possible. So many people feel like this is particularly challenging. Dr. Dean, I don't know if you have any thoughts about the six feet. Yeah, it it definitely, it is challenging. And, um, you know, one way that schools can overcome that is, you know, being in school is better than like just totally closing schools. And so some schools have had children return to school, but done it in a, in a graded fashion. So maybe half days, and that way they're able to split the classes in half and they're more able to physical distance. So there are some solutions to these problems. Yeah, they refer to that as cohorting. So those are some options. 
Hand washing and respiratory etiquette, like we've talked about over and over. Yep. Cleaning. So um, that's maintaining healthy facilities, having increased cleaning staff. They don't mention um, changing out air filtration systems or things like that, which I know had been on the table before, but really just opening windows if you're able to, if the weather permits, and making sure that you're cleaning. And then like you mentioned, contact tracing. They're also looking at at monitoring community transmission, and that is the case rate per 100,000 people or the percent of positive COVID tests in the last seven days. And kind of using this as an indicator, they're using like blue, yellow, orange, red. And to be honest, this is really confusing. This is even pretty confusing for Dr. Dean and I. <laughs> it's very confusing the, the, to try to figure out where each community is and where it's going and whether it's safe or not to open up. Yeah, but one thing I thought was interesting, and I would love to get your take, is that it seems like in these recommendations, kindergartens or younger kids, they say, can open safely even when the transmission in the community might be a little higher. Is that because those studies showed that younger kids transmitted it less frequently? Yeah, so there's two things. One is that the younger you are, the younger the children are, the less likely they're going to be infected and the less likely they are to transmit to others. And they're also generally younger kids are going to have less contacts, right? So teenagers are probably going to have more contacts than a than a yeah. five-year-old. That makes sense. The other thing that the CDC recommendations touch on is testing. So the Ability to either do routine screening tests, so screening asymptomatic people, you know, once a week or somehow randomly screening, or of course having the availability to test if you had a potential exposure. Um, do you know how other places have been doing this, Dr. Dean? Yeah, you know, depending on the resources, they've been doing both. So I know like a lot of private schools will have the resources to do the screening once a week or once a month or screen before children are coming back after a break. Um, but most public schools don't have those resources, and so that's not being done. Right, but the CDC guidance still says that even without routine screening that there is the possibility to open safely. Right. And you probably would not be surprised to hear that I've got like strong opinions about each of these recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> not surprised at all. And that brings us to vaccinations. So, of course, in the ideal world, and I hope, hope, hope soon, I know here in California, teachers are in, correct me if I'm wrong, phase 1B. And so they are getting close to being um, the next round of people vaccinated. Um, of course, we would love to get teachers vaccinated as soon as possible, but it doesn't seem like this is desirable, but not necessary. So even in the absence of vaccination and students and staff, we found that in these other instances that I've gone through, we have the experience and we know that schools can safely be opened without that. We know that vaccine is not available for most children yet, for most students yet. The vaccines um, are not recommended below age 16 yet. So we know that that's not available, and we know many, many teachers have not been vaccinated yet. And yet I still do feel that it's safe. We've got the experience that it is safe to open up. Um, it is safe for the teachers to be in that environment. 
But I think we also, ideally, we need to respect that there are unique circumstances that some teachers have, either because they or their family members are at high risk for severe disease. And so in an ideal world, school districts would allow in-person learning, and for those students, um, those families, those teachers who weren't comfortable with that until they were vaccinated, that they would concentrate then on distance learning because we think that there will be teachers who would prefer to do that. And we think that there's families that will continue to prefer that until there is herd immunity, until there is widespread um, vaccination. Absolutely. I think that that is a great compromise. And I think that that sums it up really nicely. Where are we on the status of vaccine just really quickly in studies in younger kids? So there are studies with the two available vaccines in the U.S., the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. They're studying children 12 to um, 16 and 12 to 18 years of age. So those studies are in place. Once we get results of those studies, if it, the vaccines look safe, if there's no surprises with adverse effects, if they look like they're immunogenic, the immune response is good, um, then they'll do studies in younger children. So that'll probably be a few months. Yeah, that I mean, all of this has been moving along really quickly. And, you know, now that we're going on a year of kids out of school, I think that it is definitely time that we begin having these super important conversations and and hope that each community will really take this seriously and look at all of the possibilities to getting kids back to school safely um, of course, with universal masking, distancing, and know that the pediatricians in your community would love to be allies and help you to make sure that we can get our kids back to school safely. Yeah. And I'd just like to highlight out of all the CDC guidance, you know, to me, the ones that make most sense is masking, universal masking. We know there's science that shows that that does decrease transmission. The physical distancing, we know we've got studies that physical distancing, you know, six feet is what we've been using, but even three feet will decrease um, transmission by about 90%. So um, the physical distancing is really important. You know, hand washing and respiratory etiquette, of course, that's important, but the <laughs> This is not primarily driven by touching things. And so all the cleaning and, and disinfecting, you know, I'm not aware of any outbreak that's caused by touching contaminated surfaces. So to me, that's much less important. And then, you know, it's common sense that you need to have adequate testing and contact tracing, because if you do get a case, you're going to want to be able to limit spread within a classroom, within a school. Um, so to me, those are, are the most important things. And even in communities with high rates of transmission, I would hope that um, that schools look to open to see if they can reopen um, and at least dip their toe, maybe on a limited basis with half days to, to start and then get comfortable and then go to full days if they can. Absolutely. And of course, as new things come up, as we see schools start to do this, we will always um, be the first to update you. You know, we are also aware of these new variants and other things that are coming out. And so, you know, all of this can change, but all of the studies and data at this point looks like it is, is safe to get our kids back in school. Amen. <laughs> That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. 
please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 